believing that you are who you say you are. That you have done a work. And God, when you said it was finished, it was. God, move in us this morning. Speak through Mike. And open our hearts to what you have to say this morning. We love you. Good morning. My name is Mike. To those of you who were able to, to make it last week, it was an awesome blessing celebrating our 30th anniversary with you. For, for those of you who weren't able to make it, you were very much missed. And I, I encourage you to, to jump online and to watch the film that Eric and Lauren Larson made about the, the history of the church and the values of the church throughout the years. I really encourage you to, to take a, a look at that. It was really encouraging to, to me and to my faith. So at the, at the 30th anniversary, anniversary service, we, we spent some time talking about sort of who we are as a church, and so it seems, it seems, it seems appropriate that, that we're beginning a series sort of embarking on um, exploring the core of, of, of who we are as a church, so not, not only us as Trinity community, but really the core of our faith, we're talking about the, the gospel. We're, we're going to spend the, the rest of the summer exploring the, the core convictions of Christianity, the gospel. So throughout the, the writings of the Christian scriptures, you get this sense that the content of the gospel, and what I mean by that is like the obedience of Christ, the forgiveness of sins through the cross, the victory of the resurrection, the enthronement of Jesus, you get this sense throughout the Christian writings that these aren't just sort of abstract concepts. That like if, if the news of the gospel is true, then everything changes. Like no area of life can possibly be lived in the exact same way if the gospel is true. We can no longer see the world the same way. We can no longer see ourselves the same way. And it's amazing that throughout the history of the church, as people encounter the gospel, this is often their reaction. Like, nothing is the same now. So the gospel changes everything, and many of us get that on sort of like an abstract level, but the tragedy is we often lose touch with the nuts and bolts of how that actually works. We, We don't feel like we're actually equipped to see how the gospel would shape the way we parent or the way we... Uh, have friendships, or the way we organize our time, or what we do with our free time, or how we consume entertainment or mass media. We, we don't tend to think, like, does the gospel actually have relevance there? And sometimes it's simply because we don't feel equipped to, to ask that question. And so it's important that we make this habit of returning to the gospel and reminding ourselves of the way it changes us. And so that's our goal this summer. We'll be considering the gospel in the nuts and bolts of life. In the spring, we invited you to fill out a survey and and sort of submit a number of different topics that you'd like to to see covered this summer. And so we we chose a a bunch of them that are sort of the most common, and that's that's what made up the schedule for, for this summer. So we'll be taking topic by topic and applying the gospel to it. And the goal, the hope, is that it's going to be pretty concrete, right? kind of nuts and bolts, except today. Today is abstract day, right? So today is Mike in his wheelhouse. Like, we're going to be, but it's, it's important, though. It's important that we take this kind of big picture, abstract view of, of the gospel at, at the beginning, where we get the, the whole, like, cosmic scope of it, because the gospel is huge. And so if we begin with this kind of, like, big picture thing, I think it'll be really beneficial to us as we go along, because that will remain in, in, in the back of our minds as we continue to, to work out the nuts and bolts. So, what is the gospel? That's the topic of today's sermon. 
There hasn't always been agreement on the answer to that question, though, unfortunately. So just briefly, I can mention a, like two major movements in the past century and a half that have claimed to be bringing Christians back to the core of the faith and, and, and the core of, of the gospel. The first was sort of in the late 1800s. It was called the Social Gospel Movement. It was launched by Washington Gladden and Walter Rauschenbusch. Such a hard name to pronounce. He was right in Hell's Kitchen right when it was getting really uh, pretty bad uh, in Hell's Kitchen. And they, what they were seeing was that Christians were attending church and, and they, they had this, this sense of God's grace. But it was very much this sort of individualistic thing. When they thought about how the gospel shapes their life, it was, well, the gospel shapes my life because I tell people about Jesus and I take seriously the forgiveness of my own sins. But there, there wasn't this sense of, of the way that the kingdom is actually returning to earth, that God is restoring his kingdom to the world, and that Christians somehow take part in that process. And so the, the, the launch of the social gospel movement was largely around just teaching Christians to, that a, a life shaped by the gospel is a life of demonstrating the kingdom, seeking after the poor. The problem was, though, as the social gospel movement continued, what they started to do is they're like, well, we need to emphasize this more, so we're going to downplay the forgiveness of sins. We're going to downplay the, the, the seriousness of, of our responsibility in the darkness, right? So we're going to downplay those things. We're going to upplay the kingdom. And so what, what you end up having was, was a movement that remembered the kingdom of God, but it had forgotten the cross. Fast forward about 100 years. About 15 years ago, we had the launch of another movement, the gospel-centered movement. Again, the focus was to draw attention back to the core of the faith. And, and again, the leaders in the gospel-centered movement, some of them are, uh, were actually profs right here at, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. We as a church have, been, have benefited enormously from the gospel-centered movement. Uh, D.A. Carson, right over at Trinity, he, he recently retired. So these leaders were identifying that Christians were attending church, and, and they had sort of a sense of, of moralism. This, they had this idea that if that Jesus came to Give us the example of how to live, and if we live that way, then we'll be made right with God, which is essentially the opposite of the gospel. Like, there's nothing more opposite to, to what Christians believe than that. And so the gospel-centered movement started to, to re-emphasize the cross, to, to re-emphasize the, the utter desperation of, of, of what it is to be human, that we absolutely need the grace of God in all things to be restored to him. And, and honestly, the gospel-centered movement has pretty much stayed on target the whole time, but only very recently there have been a couple leaders that have started sort of veer. And what they've, they've started to do is they've so emphasized the cross that they've started calling out other leaders within the movement because those leaders are talking about justice and talking about the kingdom and saying they've sacrificed the gospel. One of them is a, is a friend of mine who pastors locally, and I can tell you it is difficult to get from the beginning of a conversation with him to the end of a conversation without him talking about the cross. This is a cross-centered man, but he's also not afraid to talk about justice. And he's being lambasted over the internet as having sacrificed the gospel because he's talking about the kingdom. That's mission creep, right? So what we're, we're seeing in these, these individual leaders within the gospel-centered movement now is that they, they're remembering the cross, but they're forgetting the kingdom. And again, I do want to say, to be fair, that is not the case with all gospel-centered leaders. Most of them, I think, are able to toe that balance pretty well. But for these individual leaders, they're remembering the cross, but they're forgetting the kingdom. And so we've sort of got this, this tug of war between kingdom and cross. What is it? Is the gospel the kingdom or the cross? Yes, 
It's both. It is both the kingdom and the cross. It is the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of all things. It is both individual and it's cosmic. But how does that work? Welcome to the sermon. So that's the rest of the sermon. So the, the, how does that work? How does this, this kingdom and cross thing come together? And where, how it comes together? It comes together in a story. Fundamentally, the gospel is a, is a story. It's an announcement. And when I say story, I don't mean like a, a fable. By no means did Christians believe throughout the ages that they were announcing a fable to the world or a, a metaphor for how the world works. The explicit claim of Christians throughout the ages is that they are telling the story of our world. The gospel is the story that is operating behind all the other stories in our world. And so, in fact, in, in Paul's letter to the Christians in, in, in the city of Ephesus, that's exactly how he describes the gospel. So if, if, if you cha- uh, turn to page 976 in the Bibles under your chairs, what we're going to be doing this morning is basically just jumping around the first three chapters of Ephesians. That's why we didn't have a reading, because we would have been here for a very long time. So I'll, I'll just be dipping in to different parts of, of the first three chapters. So it, it might be useful to have a, a Bible open. So right at the beginning of, of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul it just comes out gushing praise to God for the gospel. There's a, um, so there's a movie by a French director na- um, named Jacques Demi. The movie's called Bay of Angels. And it starts with just a shot down a, a French street, and then without warning, suddenly the, like, it, the street just takes off from under the camera. And you realize that Jacques Demi has hitched the camera to the back bumper of a car, and so you're just watching this street take off from under the camera. It's the most exhilarating opening to any movie. It is awesome. And I feel like the opening, to the, uh, the opening of the letter to the Ephesians is like that. It's the opening of Bay of Angels, but in an epistle. Like literally in the original Greek, Paul writes the first, four, I think it's 14, if not it's at least the first 11 verses in one sentence. It's all just one ongoing sentence. It's this breathless, like, all right, and we're doing this now, and just suddenly it's off. So he opens just gushing praise to God for the gospel, and he's describing all the ways that God has loved us as his people in, in, in Christ. Paul describes the work of God, and he describes it like this. This is chapter, chapter 1, verse 10. He describes the work of God as a plan for the fullness of time. So the fullness of time means sort of the culmination of all things. To unite all things in Christ, in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So he's talking about the direction of human history. Paul is talking about the the story behind all the stories of human history. That the gospel is actually directing the course of the rest of the human narrative. There's a journalist who's gained a lot of fame, a lot of controversy as well. Uh, his name is Ta-Nehisi Coates, and he has, he's, he's a, uh, a pretty convinced atheist, and he, he likes to approach a lot of his journalism through an atheistic lens. And so at one point, he was sort of interacting with MLK. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had this statement where he said that history arcs toward justice, right? That's a pretty, if you guys heard that phrase before, that's a pretty famous thing that MLK said. Ta-Nehisi Coates was interacting with it, and he, he said, I, don't, I can't bring myself to believe that. I have to believe that history arcs toward chaos. And you can kind of see why he would say that. Right? Coates is, obviously, he's seeing the world through, through an atheistic lens, and what he's seeing is nations rising and falling in really unpredictable ways. He's seeing that things at the, on the surface can seem very unambiguous, but then when you really delve into the motivations that move nations and peoples, it's just full of ambiguity, and, and it's complicated. There's lots of unfairness. And so, for him, 
as an atheist and, and thinking about the world, he, he wants to say history arcs toward chaos, man. There's no meaning to this, right? But the writers of the New Testament believed that they had been let into a secret about human history. And here's the thing about the biblical writers. They were no less educated about the chaos of history as we are. I mean, read the book of Ecclesiastes, read the book of Job, read the book of Daniel. I mean, like in our own Bibles are descriptions of exactly what ta Coates is describing. Chaos in history. Nations rising and falling. The wicked prospering. The righteous being crushed under, under systems and under people. Things are unfair. It's confusing. It's chaotic. But the writers of the New Testament believed that operating behind all of that was meaning. That behind all the chaos of human history, they had been let into a secret. And the secret was, was that they had been shown God's objective for history. The direction that all of history is going. And they believed that God had done something to guarantee that his objective came about. He had done something to guarantee a good ending at the end of all the chaos. He had done something to guarantee that at the other side of all this chaos, there would be a culmination that would somehow be satisfying after it all. And that good ending is the return of his kingdom to the world. That's what Paul's talking about here. The uniting of all things under Christ. What he means is uniting all things under the authority and the desires, the good intentions of Christ, that all things will be exactly according to the way he wants them, which is very good news. And in fact, that's, that's how Jesus described the gospel himself. Remember from the, the, the beginning of the book of Matthew that Jesus comes out preaching the gospel, and what does he say? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The announcement that Jesus made was that with his coming, God was putting all things right. History has a direction now. And that's kind of the big picture what the gospel is. It's the announcement of the return of God's kingdom by God's grace in the person and work of Jesus. And and so the gospel is a story, the story of our world, the hidden truth behind what's happening in our world. So we're going to just dig into it. And when we're talking about the gospel, you can easily break it up into sort of five parts. Or if we were doing a play, it would be five acts. And so that's kind of what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do the gospel as five acts of a play. And so act one, the way it should have been. Act one, the way it should have been. So a growing number of people in our culture, in fact, it's one of the the most rapidly growing spiritual demographics in certainly the West— uh, is, is New Age spiritualism, sometimes it's, called, sometimes it's called oneism. So it's kind of a, a, a mixture of Hindu mysticism, Zen Buddhism, and a couple other things, and it's, it's very diverse. So there's no like kind of cookie-cutter New Age spiritualism. It's, it's a highly diverse, complicated system. But if I were a New Age spiritualist, and I were, were asked to kind of explain the world, right, what would I say? I would say that the world doesn't actually exist in the way we perceive it, right? Doesn't it? it it exists, but not in the way that you see it. What you're encountering is kind of an illusion. Really, the, the, the world and all our lives are sort of thought experiments in the consciousness of God. It's play in the consciousness of God. And God really isn't like a person. It's actually more of like an impersonal energy, and all life just emanates out of God. And so we... we we all, in some sense, are God to a New Age spiritualist. The whole world is God. It's all sort of a play in consciousness within 
this energy that we, we like to call God. And so all of us are God, and it's really, really important that we realize that. To a New Age spiritualist, what they would say is that it's really important that we develop ourselves, that we elevate our consciousness so that we can realize that we are God, and then we'll sort of no longer experience ourselves as embodied anymore. We'll transcend and become one with, with God. So in order to do that, we have to disassociate ourselves from the world, disassociate ourselves from our bodies, our egos, from any idea of the self. And if we can accomplish that, then we become God, or rather we, we experience ourselves as God because we already are. So that's a lot to throw out you really, really fast. But I do that be, just to compare the Christian view to that. Christians take a super different view of basically everything I just said, Right? Now, what I just said is complicated, and it's, it's, it's worth taking seriously because, again, it's a complicated system that's probably the rapid, most rapidly growing spiritual group in the United States. So prepare. 20, 20 years from now, most people will be, will be New Age spiritualists. If you're here and you're New Age spiritualists, this might be weird. I'm not bashing your thought system, but I don't believe it, and so I would like to compare it to Christianity, and if, if you have more questions, please approach me afterward. Christians do take a different view. We don't believe the universe is God. We believe the universe is good. And we believe the universe doesn't need to be God to be good. We believe that God exists independently from the cosmos. He's not an impersonal energy, but a triune person. And what I mean by that is that God is a spiritual being, a mind. And he's a, a, a spiritual being that exists as a relationship between three persons who are endlessly giving and receiving love for one another. At one point in the Christian scriptures, one of the writers says that God is love. This is what he's referring to. God, in, in, his, in what God is, he is a being that exists as three people endlessly giving and receiving love for one another. Fundamentally, what God is in his being is an act of self-giving love. The Father to the Son, the Son to the Spirit, Spirit to the Father and Son. Just endlessly dancing within himself, full of self-giving love. He is the, a being of infinite power, wisdom, and glory. He is the true, the good, and the beautiful. He is the king of all, thing, of all kings. He exists before all things. And the universe is not an emanation out of him. It's not a play in his consciousness. It's a result of a choice that he made. Everything we see is a result of God's intentional choice to be very, very creative and to express himself through a world that would reflect who he is. The world is not an illusion in Christian thought. It is a theater for the glory of God. And that goes for all its particulars. The sand between your toes on the beach. The pine sap on your fingers in the woods. The way different foods all taste different from one another. If you want to taste some of those foods, go to the stimuls after the service. All the sense in nature, right? The uniqueness of every individual face. Right now, the ground underneath us and outside is just teeming with a frenzy of life that we aren't even aware of. And all of it is an expression of the glory of God. God created this world as a way of reflecting his goodness, glory, and beauty. And humans play a very important and and unique role in creation. It's interesting. In any thought system that you interact with, and and that includes atheistic thought systems that don't, don't, uh, you know, attribute necessarily value to, to being human, aside from just evolutionary privilege, In any thought system that you encounter, humans have a unique role to play. Being human comes with responsibility. There's almost nobody in any thought system, again, Eastern, Western, atheistic, non-theistic, which would be like Buddhist, Hindu religions, and 
Everybody thinks that being human comes with some kind of responsibility. That being human is a very noble thing, a very important thing. And the explanation that I have found most convincing is the one that the scriptures give, that God has brought humanity into being to be his companions and to partner with him in developing creation. Humans are very special, not because deep down we're divine, but because we're not and we're intimately connected to the divine. That humans are, are made to be deeply dependent on God, dependent on God for life, dependent on God for goodness, dependent on him for meaning. And out of this like, vital lifeline that we have to God, we would go out into the world and represent his reign everywhere we go. We've talked about this a lot. The word that a lot of theologians use is vice-regent or vice-rulers, so like sub-ruler. We were made to extend God's reign for his glory and the life of the world. That's the human purpose. Have we done that? No. Feedback, guys. No, we have not done that. We have failed to do that. It doesn't have to be vocal. It can be just like a head shake, just something to know how loud I have to be to wake you up. But so here's the question. So have, have we done that? No, we haven't. So that brings us to act two, the way things are. So we saw the way things should be. Now we're looking at the, the way things are. So under the reign of God, all things flourish, and humans cooperate with God for his glory and the life of the world. But humanity was not content to live under the reign of God, at least not for very long. The idea was planted in our minds that we could be God, or at least be very much like him. At the beginning of the Bible story, we hear about an event that took place in humanity's ancient past. We hear about two original humans— God sets them apart to extend his reign, and we hear how everything goes wrong. And the reason why is because they set out not to represent God, but to be him. Long ago, in our very ancient past, humanity rejected God's reign of goodness, glory, and beauty because we wanted to rule ourselves. To define good and evil on our own terms. To, 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 to define what it means to be human. We don't want to have to look outward to God for meaning. We want to find meaning within And what we end up doing, and really we're habituated to do this on a totally unconscious level. We all do this. What we're habituated to do is to just assert our own wishes onto God's world. Just constantly asserting our way. We assert our reign. It's like we're we're miniature kings. And we reject the reign of God for what we think is freedom. We think that, well, hey, it's self-governance, right? That's freedom. But really, what we think is freedom is totally a false freedom. We think self-rule is freedom, but really what ends up happening is we become enslaved to our desires. It's not that we are kings and queens. It's that we're just enslaved to different gods. Enslaved to desires that just lead us by compulsion. It's like the lash of a whip on us. How much time lasts between when it occurs to us to do something and our decision to do that thing? Very little time, right? We're just guided by compulsion. Just instinctively selfish, instinctively destructive, just compulsively hurting each other, and as long as God's reign is being rejected, that's the way it is. And so there's lots of terrible results from this incident in humanity's ancient past. First and foremost, we are cut off from God as the source of life. So death overshadows everything. Everything that, that we do even if we don't realize that everything we do, we do while suppressing the knowledge that we're going to die one day. Everything we do, we're constantly trying to make ourselves forget that we are beings moving toward death. 
And so death brings in futility and frustration and grief into a world that should have been full of goodness and glory and beauty and joy and life and flourishing. Instead, death overshadows everything. There's a clock on us. The first thing. Secondly, sin. I know it's an antiquated word, but it's also a super accurate one. Sin in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures refers to anything that misses the mark of God's intention. So sin comes into the world because we wanted something other than God's reign. We wanted to assert our own wishes onto the world, not God's. And so sin has corrupted everything about human life. There's no area of human life that in some way isn't complicated and made confused and and marred by sin. That's why on the face of things, history seems to arc toward chaos. Because confusion and complication, sin has corrupted everything. Humans have had a very long time to be very inventive with the ways that we want to reject the reign of God. And that's the power of hell. It's the power of sin. So that goes from the large-scale evils of genocide and slavery to the pride and the lust and the greed those evils come from. The reign of death and hell move in wherever the reign of God has been pushed out. They can't share the same space. And so we're at this point where the world has sort of been handed over to the darkness and we have all actually participated in it. So here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians. is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. He's talking to a group of Christians who, because of Jesus, they're no longer sort of, their their status, their worth is no longer determined by their sin. And so he's going to talk to them in the past tense, but this describes all of us prior to, to, to Jesus, without Jesus. And so you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Living by compulsions, enslaved to sinful, selfish, destructive desire. That would be really easy for us to say, that does not describe me. What you just read in Ephesians does not describe me. I'm a good person. Lots of us do this. Oftentimes we do this because we identify as Christians. We say, I'm not at all subject to sin. I don't sin because I'm a Christian, or at least if I sin, it's in like only really tolerable ways. I check the right box on the census. Don't call me out for anything right? We, we, mis- we think that because we've been saved from the penalty of sin, we've also been saved from the presence of sin. And that's a mistake. We say, I'm a Christian. I'm one of God's people. I don't foster any evil in my heart, at least none that you should call out. We deny that we're guilty, and usually we're able to get to bed easy at night because what we've done for the past couple hours prior to bed is rifle through our news feed, and we say, nope, not guilty of a shooting, not guilty of a robbery, not guilty of a genocide. I'm happy to say that I have not participated in trafficking any slaves lately. Therefore, I am a good person, right? And then we go to bed, and we go to bed holding within our hearts pride and lust and greed, the roots of all those large-scale evils. Maybe our contribution to the darkness is only an unwillingness to admit that we're contributing. Maybe all we do is act a little rude, maybe watch a little porn now and then, maybe gossip a bit, that's all. Nobody thinks we look like villains. I'm not twirling a mustache, right? But the truth, 
is that we're not innocent. We all contribute to the darkness. Our contribution just isn't as visible. We're not good. We're just privatizing our evil. We're not against evil. We just like to take it with moderation. Without intervention of some kind, humanity's story will arc toward chaos, and it's because we're all harboring self-justifying sin. So is there any hope for God's creation, or will humans just endlessly continue to ruin things? There is good news. The good news is that God loves goodness more than we do. We are tolerant of evil, but he's not. And he loves this world more than we do. He loves us more than we do. We can accept a little darkness, but God won't. And he has committed himself to restoring his world back to his reign of goodness, glory, and beauty. He has committed himself to restoring humanity back to our purpose of living for his glory and the life of the world. But here's the problem. If God is going to restore the world, it ought to be a just one, right? A fair one. A world where justice is done, where goodness really has the final word. Which means something has got to be done about human evil. And evil isn't like a substance out there. It's not like just a concept. Evil is something that happens because we make choices. Humans are responsible for evil. It's not just some floating entity like a smoke in the cosmos. It's us. We're responsible. Evil comes about because we make choices. And so if evil has to be addressed, it's not going to be addressed as just something out there. It's us that has to be addressed. Our evil. And that's what what Christians and the, the Hebrews meant by the judgment of God. This is meaningful for us because all humans are responsible for the state of the world. We've all implicitly sided with the darkness. So if God is going to be just and he's going to banish the darkness, if something doesn't change, we're getting banished too. Because that's justice. So how can humans be restored and redeemed, but at the same time avoid the judgment of God? That's the dilemma. So we've seen the way it should have been, the way it is, now for Act 3, the way it's made right. So on our own, none of us are capable of correcting ourselves. We certainly try, though, right? We certainly try to correct ourselves. And you might define yourself as religious or spiritual. The word doesn't really matter that much to me. Some of us try religiosity to correct ourselves. You know, we we sort of become moralists, right? Like we're going to attend church, we're going to put on a good front, we're going to do moral things, and the more we succeed, it's almost more dangerous for us because we feel more and more comfortable in our own skin, right? Like, I'm good. I'm winning the favor of God. Others of us consider ourselves more spiritual. You may be a a Christian and, and, you know, approach that through a Christian lens, or, or maybe you're approaching that through an Eastern lens, through meditation or whatever, but you're developing yourself through your spirituality, you're tapping into your spirituality, and again, it's a dangerous route. Because the, the more you go down that route, the more you feel like, hey, man, I meditate for 30 minutes every day. I, I'm on a path of inner healing. I'm developing myself. I'm good. And in both cases, we're, we're just returning to the garden. We're trying to find a way of correcting ourselves without God. But God made us to be deeply dependent on him. To, he, he made us to depend on him as our lifeline. And so if we're trying to find a, a road to salvation that, that doesn't involve 
throwing our full trust and dependence on God, then we are lost. God has made us for dependence on him. The only way we're going to be restored is through dependence on him. He will have to make things right, and we will have to place our hope and trust in what he can do. And the gospel is the news that God has done exactly that. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. In order for humans to to be what we are meant to be, in order for all things to be restored, God became one of us in the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus lived the life of servanthood and love that we were meant to live. He lived for the glory of God and the life of the world. One of our elders, Everett, once said that Jesus spent every calorie of his energy as a gift to God. He did it all as our representative. So that might be kind of a weird concept, this whole idea of somebody acting as our representative. We're hugely individualistic in the United States, right? So that's kind of a weird concept. How can somebody represent me and... and and do that in, in a meaningful way. So I, a good analogy might be with some of our, our sports teams, right? So this might come as a surprise to you, but I cannot throw a 90-mile-per-hour fastball, right? I can't do that. That's hard for me to do. So if the fate of the White Sox rode on my ability to do that or to bat above a 300 average or to field a line drive, the White Sox, all, our, all the fans of White Sox, we would be losers for eternity. We would just lose forever, so not much would change. But let's just say for a second that let's just say that the White Sox were actually good. Like, so let's, they're actually good. And I, I can't step out on the diamond and think, like, I'm going to make myself victorious, right? For my, if, any hope that I have of sports victory, my hope can't be wrapped up in my ability to accomplish it because I'm terrible at sports. So I have to trust in the White Sox to pull this thing through. My hope for victory is put entirely in the ability of the White Sox to do what I could never do. They are my representatives. Every time they go out on the field, they carry me and all the other fans, our status as winners or losers. They carry that on the field and represent not just themselves, but everybody who identifies with the White Sox. Jesus is like that on a moral and spiritual level for all of humanity. Jesus acts as our representative before God because he is God in the flesh and he lives the life we were made to live, the truly human life. But instead of of getting what he deserves at the end of that life, which is avoiding judgment, Jesus mounts a Roman cross beam and suffers our judgment in our place. He does the only thing that a God whose very being is self-giving love, he does the only thing that that kind of a being would do. He gives himself up. He gives himself up to the corrupt authorities of his day. He gives himself up to be pinned like an insect against a cross and manages between gasps to plead with God for the forgiveness of his killers. And while he is suffering, God pours on him the judgment for all of our evil. Our evil becomes associated not with us, but with Jesus. And Jesus gets crushed under the force of hell and sin and death for our sakes. And the forgiveness of sins is purchased for humanity. 
We've talked about this a lot, but that kind of an act, that was not at all part of Jewish expectation for a Savior. Like a, a Savior, Messiah in particular, that was a political figure. So they didn't, they didn't anticipate an act of cosmic self-giving love, right? That wasn't what they were expecting. So what made the early Christians think that that kind of a thing had taken place? Because the whole getting killed on a cross thing should have ruled Jesus out as Messiah. So why would they suddenly say, you know what, I think he was Messiah. The answer is as unbelievable in the first century as it is for us today. The early Christians, they didn't think that Jesus rose from the grave because they had already was Messiah. They decided he's got to be Messiah because he rose from the grave. Jesus is resurrected. And the significance of that is enormous. Paul writes in in chapter 1, I know I'm jumping around, but chapter 1, go with me to verse 20. So he's talking about the gospel still and the, the great working of God's great might. And he says that he worked it in Christ when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him and throned him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority. So we're talking about the return of the kingdom of God, the beginning of of Jesus superintending the rest of human history. He's seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to us, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The resurrection of Jesus is the moment when the new creation, the reign of God, breaks into our world. It is the victory over death. It is the reason for Christian hope. It is the sign that announces that history, in the end, will not arc toward chaos. It will arc toward a good ending. Death will be overthrown. The darkness will be pushed out. Life will flourish again. The purpose for all things will be restored. And God's reign will make all things new, including us. That brings us to Act 4, the way we take part. So Jesus has accomplished this amazing thing. This is the event that is at the heart of the gospel. All things lead to this good ending. So how do we take part in that? Well, it begins with us as individuals, each and every one of us, acknowledging our part in the darkness really identifying ourselves as sinners, which again, I, I, like that word is so anathema nowadays, and I get it. It's been misused by a whole bunch of people. But what else do you call somebody who sins habitually? That's us. It, it involves acknowledging our real status as, as sinners, as people who just do this thing all the time. Right? As people who have rejected the reign of God, we realize our part, we acknowledge our part, and then we disown it. We turn around. We say, I want no part of that anymore. And that's what Christians call repentance. There is something special about the first time that it happens, that first moment of turning around, but repentance isn't a one-time thing. It is a Christian habit that you, you just are constantly re-upping for the rest of your walk with, with Jesus. So we repent, and then secondly, we trust. We believe. And, and the, the belief here is referring, it's a special kind of belief. It's a trust that what Jesus has done will really be enough to make us right. It's a return to dependence. It's an acknowledgement that, like, man, I know I'm too weak to carry this thing through. 
So I am throwing everything, all my hope on Jesus. We drop our independence and we become dependent on God for life and hope and meaning all over again. And because of what Jesus has done, that trust is all it takes. Just a return to depending on God. Trusting in the work of Jesus, in the cross and the resurrection. That's the, it's interesting, that's sort of the first step back in line with what it means to be a human. We were made for this dependent relationship, and when we turn to Jesus, we return to the way of, of trust in him. We give up self-rule. So we repent, believe, and lastly, we follow. When we trust in the work of Jesus, we join with all those who have disowned the way of hell, and we begin to learn, we begin to get enculturated into the way of the kingdom. We follow Jesus. And we don't do that alone. We join with, with a community Trinity community. We join with communities of Jesus' followers to practice his way together. That's what we are. We are a community of Jesus' followers who have covenanted together to follow the way of Jesus together and to announce the news of what he's done to everyone we know. And something amazing happens through the people of the church. So jump to chapter 3 with me. Paul, again, he's talking about his role as a minister of this good news. He says, even though I'm the least of the saints, the grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles, so in other words, to preach to the nations, us, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. In other words, he's bringing to light the secret of human history, the secret that God has, the secret objective that he is now making known throughout the world, so that through the church, Through God's people, the manifold wisdom of God, God's plan for human history might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That the announcement of this incredible plan will be made to everyone we know. And and as we do that, this mysterious thing is taking place where we're also making that announcement to the unseen entities that exist throughout the world and rule it. That through the humble acts of self-giving love and the humble announcement of the gospel, God is shouting to the cosmos, I won! And he uses us to do it. God is using the strange family of people to make known the deep, hidden truth behind all things. And we participate in that as we follow the way of Jesus. We forgive our enemies. We serve the forgotten. We plead in prayer for each other and for the world. We give ourselves in love to one another, and we announce the gospel. You see, this whole thing, is the gospel the cross or is it the kingdom? That's a false dichotomy, man. It is both. The gospel is the coming of God's kingdom and the cross of Christ. And everywhere that the church is, God is setting up these little outposts of his kingdom throughout the world until the day when he brings about Act 5, the way it ends. In the end, God brings a close to all things. And all things are made new. The rule of heaven restores the ruin of earth. And there's this moment that takes place where the new life of Jesus' resurrection, it gets extrapolated across all creation. So that all things suddenly are a part of this incorruptible, ongoing, budding, flourishing, constantly developing, unstoppable life. And that goes for all of us who repent and believe. We are resurrected into the new creation. Every tear is wiped from our eyes 
and we get to work. The gospel is kingdom and cross. It is the kingdom of God arriving by the cross of Christ. It is grace upon grace upon grace. It is the clue to history. It is the rediscovery of who we are made to be. It is the glory of God and the life of the world. That's the gospel. Kingdom of God and the cross of Christ. So that's been pretty abstract, big picture. I think most of you stayed awake. Awesome. So next week we get more concrete. We'll be jumping in, I think, to, to money and resources, and then we'll be exploring things like busyness and justice and friendship, and I think it's going to be awesome. Uh, work will be another one, which is a lot of different topics, and it's going to be a lot of fun. What, I, what I'm going to try to do, it's not going to always work every week, but at the end of a, a few of the sermons, what I'd like to do is just to suggest sort of something that we as a church do, like a concrete act to, to sort of integrate what we've what we've heard from God's word, and, and, and to apply the gospel to, to our lives. So this week, um, what, I'll tell you what, what I'm going to set aside time to do, and I hope that you'll participate in it with me. But at the end of, of, it's great to do this every day, but at the end of a day, choose a day, take 15 minutes to be alone. And for like the first five to seven minutes, just spend time, and it's going to be very uncomfortable, but name to God every way that you've rejected his reign that day. Every way you've sinned. Just name it to God and just sit there and make a tiny inventory. Look through your actions and your motives, your thoughts, and just name before God every way that, that you have not lived according to, the, to his will. And then open up the book of Ephesians. And for the next five to seven minutes, just, re, just pray through it. Like You can pray scripture in, in a very meaningful way, sort of like have a conversation with scripture. And as you open up Ephesians, those first couple chapters, and you're hearing Paul gush the gospel at you. Let that wash over every sin that you just named before God. Experience his grace afresh by hearing that he is seated with you in Christ in the heavenly places. In love, he predestined you for adoption as sons. He has given you the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your salvation. You were dead in your trespasses, but God has made you alive in Christ. And for every one of those phrases, let it wash over and remind you that your works don't make you right with God. God's work makes you right with him, and he has done that in Jesus. And so spend some time just experiencing the grace of God. Don't put any pressure on yourself to do something in response. Just thank him. Just, just let it well up into, into joy, into gratitude. And so let's do that this week. Love you guys. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you that, that you are restoring all things. We thank you that you have committed to to making this whole world, this whole cosmos, right again. And that you are doing that by restoring us, as humans, back to your kingdom. So I pray, Lord, that, that you would help us to daily repent and believe and to follow you. To learn the way of Jesus and to, to shape our entire lives by the gospel. To be creative to find ways to just plant gospel reminders throughout our day. That we would live our lives just saturated with reminders of your grace, the coming of the kingdom and the cross of Christ. We love you, Lord, and praise you.